This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Hawaii Tourism Authority has released data to show that Hawaii saw 2.3 million visitor arrivals from January to October of 2020. That number was 8.5 million last year, a 74% drop. Hawaii's airlift, the industry term for the number of available air seats, is down from all markets and some routes have been cut. Peter Foreman is an aviation expert and the author of two books on flying in Hawaii. He spoke with The Conversation's producer, Jason Ubai, and tells us about the state of the airline industry, both globally and in the islands. In both cases, it's horrible. <laughs> uh, it's growing. I mean, at one point, right after springtime, when, when the COVID thing began, transportation shrunk to just a trickle. And, I mean, just the smallest trickle you could imagine. Now you look at uh, coming into Hawaii, it's kind of similar to what's happening other places, which is instead of, let's say, 30,000 passengers coming through a day, we have maybe 8,000 coming through Honolulu in a day. So we're we're still just a small portion of what we have been, but it's much better than the trickle we had in the past. I was looking at the airlift numbers from the Hawaii Tourism Authority. U.S. West down 54% uh, from the East Coast, 57%. Japan down 70 And, you know, there's just and no flights from China. Some of this airlift, do you see it coming back in the near future? And You know, I see, I'm optimistic. I think as the vaccines get out there and people get vaccinated and, are willing to travel again, you're going to see a uh, surprising resurgence of air travel. I don't think people are going to be afraid of flying once they feel that they personally are safe to get on an airplane and to go somewhere. So I see a a robust recovery. So I think in time, we're going to see everything come back. As far as China goes, Aside from just a demand, but I, I know from a tourism perspective, it was a really difficult to get direct flights and passengers coming over. Do you see that coming on, uh, being one of the places that uh, resurges uh, in the future, getting more tourists here from China and more direct flights? I think uh, China is going to be one of the bright lights in the future. Um, we've had a lot of tension between the U.S. and uh, China in the previous administration, the new administration should have a lot uh, more amicable relationship with China. So I'm looking at China as very, very possibly being one of the um, places where we actually see growth in in, uh, transportation lift coming into Hawaii. Zip Air, which is a subsidiary of Japan Airlines, said they'll be launching service from Tokyo to Honolulu later this month. Uh, What do you make of this entry into the market? Well, you know, I think part of the situation is it's really hard for big airlines to make any money right now. Because think of it, um, typically you needed, let's say, 75, maybe even 80 percent of the airplane to be full just to break even. And that's not happening today because, you know, a lot of airlines are leaving the center seats empty and so on. So I think what you're you're seeing is some of the airlines like uh, in Japan, they're going to send their discount carrier, their their, uh, lowest cost carrier here, because that's the carrier that's going to reach the break-even point sooner than, let's say, their mainstream carrier. You you see some of these low-cost carriers being the first to re-enter the Hawaii market. I I think that could be one of the trends you see, uh, simply because I think labor is a little bit more open-minded during this tough time. Uh, in some of the bigger airlines that, you know, labor is concerned about the, the low-cost division taking over from some of the, you know, the high-end portion of the um, spectrum. So I think there's a lot more uh, willingness between all the people at, in an airline and or an airline system to work together and try and find something that works so that the airline system can survive. I mean, this is really, there's still a survival question out there. So if you can get the airlines to survive, then you can prosper and all segments of that airline system will prosper if you can make it through the pandemic. Um, 
on this topic of survival, even during boom years over the past decade, we've seen a lot of mergers and acquisitions uh, with Continental United, uh, American Airlines and U.S. Airways and Alaska Airlines and Virgin America. Do you see any airlines combining right now or, you know, closing up shop uh, indefinitely? You know, I see there's been so much consolidation already. Um, I, I don't necessarily see more mergers right right off the bat unless a really quality airline gets right to the ragged edge financially and needs to merge with somebody. Uh, I think what happened was when we had, after deregulation, we had a large number of big airlines. And what, what simply happened, and I was involved in very heavily in the airline industry at the time, there was always somebody who was trying to undercut everybody else. So the deregulation really was not working very well. Everybody was losing tremendous amounts of money together. And the solution was to allow some of these mergers. So once you got down to about four really big uh, national carriers, that number was small enough that nobody was really cheating. And the, um, you know, the JetBlues and some of the smaller, lighter, more maneuverable airlines could could go ahead and they could still offer special deals, but uh, they weren't going to bring the whole industry down with them. So you had this consolidation take place, and I don't see there's a need for the consolidation. Now, it brings up a question, what about Hawaiian Airlines? Well, they're not really this huge airline, so they could, in theory, be picked up by somebody. That could still happen. But the thing about Hawaiian is they have a really good brand. I mean, they, they really attract people, and people flying to Hawaii are more likely to choose Hawaiian Air than one of the bigger, more generic airlines. So consequently, you would lose value uh, by buying Hawaiian and getting rid of the brand. So, you know, you have to keep those kind of things in mind as well. Uh, speaking of Hawaiian Airlines, they are the major provider for inter-island travel. What do you see right now with the inter-island travel service? Well, you know, inter-island is, depends on what the rules are. And, you know, the, the tougher it is for people to go back and forth between the neighbor islands uh, in terms of quarantine rules and so on, the less travel you're going to have. So really, and, and it, it applies to the mainland to Hawaii flying as well, uh, it really comes down to what the government rules are will really have a huge impact on how much flying we have. I mean, just looking at coming to Hawaii, um, the availability of tests and what kind of rules there are for tests once the vaccines come out, uh, what are the rules for people who, who have gone through the full regiment and time of vaccines? Are they going to be um, subject to the same testing as everybody else? So there's a lot of big questions there. And how the state of Hawaii uh, responds with its rules will determine how much flying we can have coming into Hawaii and ultimately, you know, how well Hawaiian Airlines will do. In terms of inner island flying, a lot depends on the mayors. If um, they're extremely restrictive, you know, if, if there's plenty of tests so that people coming and going, let's say to Kauai or the Big Island, uh, can get easily tested, then there's not much of a restriction. But if you have a, a, a much tougher rule and a lack of the test, then it does become much more difficult to come and go. Uh, do you see any disruption or loss of those routes in the near future? Yeah, I mean, we've already seen some disruption, um, you know, in inner island flying uh, to some of the less populous destinations such as Molokai and Lanai. We've been seeing you know, the small single-engine Cessna caravan with, you know, nine, ten passengers, uh, those have been um, able to, you know, change their uh, number of flights so that they can, can better accommodate the number of passengers. They can fill up a higher percentage of the seats with a little airplane like that. And so, consequently, we've seen 
at one point Ohana was not flying to certain uh, destinations simply because it was really hard to fill up that airplane and and do it get anywhere near profitable. So, yeah, yeah, I think the disruption that we've seen has already taken place, and we're actually going to see some rebuilding going forward. It's, it could be a, an exciting time, actually, as we get into summer. If there's an, an available, if there's available a, a large enough number of tests and the state of Hawaii comes up with rules that are going to work with the available resources, then uh, I'm much more optimistic than um, many of the government officials on how quickly people are going to be willing to return to flying. I see a lot of retirees with plenty of money in the bank, and they're just itching to get out of the house. And once they have a vaccine and their time is up and they feel they can safely travel, those people want to come to Hawaii. I think we're going to be surprised by how quickly there's a rebound once those people are able to get vaccines. That was aviation expert Peter Foreman speaking with the conversation's producer, Jason Ubai, about the state of the airline industry and his optimism for the future. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. With the holidays in full swing, many of us are on Zoom or texting our loved ones. And this morning, we're jumping into the Wayback Machine to 1878, the year that the first telephones were introduced to Hawaii. There were only two phones initially, and in December of 1880, a charter was granted to the Hawaiian Bell Telephone Company. Although Bell is in the name, Alexander Graham Bell had nothing to do with the company. It was added only out of respect to the father of the telephone. It didn't take long to gain support in subscribers. A year after the company opened its lines, there were over 100 clients. In 1883, the going rate for phone service was $5 for a business line and $4 for residential. This price eventually decreased to 18 in 1883 with the introduction of the Mutual Telephone Company, dropping the cost to $3 for business and $2 for residential. But enough of the history. Now the question, can you tell us who owned the first two phones in the state? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to strengthening communities statewide by supporting affordable housing, providing infrastructure, and creating jobs. Learn more at nareethawaii.com. The COVID-19 pandemic and its ensuing economic crisis has had a particularly strong effect on small businesses. Uh, Melissa Palasek is the Hawaii State Director of the National Federation of Independent Businesses. She says that the scope of small business is much broader than what the average resident might think, and the resources needed to help different businesses also varies. She spoke with the Conversations' Harrison Patino about what can be done to help. 
We have about 900 independently owned businesses in Hawaii who are members of NFIB and we're affiliated with a national organization that has members in all 50 states. The typical small business that's a member of NFIB here in Hawaii has under a million dollars in revenue and fewer than 10 employees. Sometimes it is very small businesses, sole proprietors, and uh, single or two-member limited liability companies. But these are very small businesses, but they have a big impact on Hawaii's economy. Now, I know it's hard to generalize across such a broad spectrum of businesses, but on the whole, how successful have small business pivots been? I guess the question is, overall and prior to COVID-19, I would say small businesses have been thriving, even though we have a lot of economic challenges being in a geographically isolated place like Hawaii. But since the pandemic, small businesses have really struggled to adjust to the economic shutdown and to have the tourism spigot turned off. Even those small businesses that don't immediately seem to be related to tourism are through, you know, the the link of this business serving that business and, and going down the food chain. I would say every business in Hawaii and every NFIB member has definitely been affected by the pandemic. Now, again, I don't want to generalize here, but we've heard certain lawmakers say things like businesses, by and large, are going to have to pivot if they're going to survive this idea of changing their strategies, business models in the face of the pandemic. But is that idea of just pivoting your your business model, I know it's sort of a grim question, but is that enough to keep a small business alive? I mean, I guess it depends on how you take the word pivoting, and it's become a bit overused, and I think a lot of small businesses are getting even weary of it although the the pandemic has been hitting us for less than a year. But I think essentially it means selling new products or services to your existing customers if you can, or finding new customers for the products and services that you already sell. And so small businesses in Hawaii, and especially those that are members of NFIB, have opportunities and have given thought to how can they sell their products and services elsewhere, even if they hadn't been thinking about that previously. There's obviously a lot of challenges with that. When you're a service business, it may be difficult to translate that to a service you can provide elsewhere. But this is where a lot of digital transformation is taking place and companies are thinking about how can they provide services through the internet or um, in other ways to place to people in Hawaii. That isn't the cure-all because other places not in Hawaii are also suffering an economic downturn. So it's not like there are these pockets of customers just waiting to spend money for any small business, whether they're here or elsewhere. But it definitely does open up some new opportunities. Now, I think when people think of small business, one of the things they first think of is restaurants. But obviously, there's more than just that. Now, we know that restaurants have had to change dining and service practices, maybe cater to new clientele, move to takeout entirely. What about other small business pivots out there that people might not know about? How are business models changing for business types that might be less considered? Well, speaking for myself, I'm also an NFIB member. I have a small consulting company that works with businesses who advocate at the state legislature. And we have found new technologies Um, that we're able to use to engage constituents in advocacy. So we really examined every step of our business process and asked ourselves, is there something that we could do to enhance the services that we provide and give our customers and our clients new opportunities? I know a lot of the NFIB members are small professional services, such as dentists, accountants, and other small offices. And they've also been making adjustments. One of the biggest, of course, is limiting the number of people in an office at one time. And this is entailing a lot of scheduling and making sure that people don't come to their appointment too early and they have a waiting room um, that's not filled to capacity and they have proper social distancing and protective equipment. So... um, I think it really depends on the type of business. And like you said, NFIB represents almost a 1,000 businesses in Hawaii of many different sectors. 
But I think there are a lot of commonalities as well. And so one of the common things that businesses are doing is to um, really train their workforce and stagger the schedules and uh, work with employees on safety and health protocols. That's something that every business that comes in contact with members of the public has to do. And I think we're seeing that across the board. We also have to deal with um, ensuring that we have work from home policies where, where our employees are working from home and there's some challenges in terms of what will workers' compensation insurance cover, what, how will the wage and hour laws be affected when you aren't necessarily, when your supervisor or manager doesn't have eyes on whether an employee is working or not working. So these are things many of our small businesses are wrestling with and um, I think to varying degrees of success. That was Melissa Pavlicek, the Hawaii State Director of National Federation of Independent Businesses. She was talking with the Conversations Harrison Patino about the impact COVID-19 has had on the state's small businesses. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The new exhibition, Okalani, features works by Native Hawaiian artists Sean K.L. Brown and Imai Kalani Kalahele through January 3rd. HonoluluMuseum.org. It's just not the holidays without the Nutcracker, and so Hawaii Public Radio presents a gift to the community. Ballet Hawaii's The Nutcracker with the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra set in the 1858 Kingdom of Hawaii, incorporating a blend of new and previously recorded productions from years past. Watch it December 19th at 7 p.m. on KITV Channel 4. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Literacy, that's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats, Chad Blair on the line today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So the headline of the story that we're going to be talking about, it says one in six Hawaii residents struggle to read. Uh, that's amazing to me. Yeah, this is, by the way, Anita Hofschneider's story, and I'm filling in for her because she's covering a hearing today. But you know, she opens with um, an interesting example that we tend to forget sometimes that, you know, back during the Hawaiian kingdom in the 19th century, literacy adult literacy included exceeded 90%. I mean, that's pretty darn remarkable. Uh, in fact, it made the Hawaiian kingdom uh, one of the most literate nations uh, on earth at the time. So contrast that with one in six adults today struggling to to read English. Now, that is somewhat on par with uh, other states. We even do better than some other states, but it's not something to be proud about. It's something that uh, we are trying to change. And just last month, the state introduced a literacy plan to help reverse that troubling trend because it is problematic. Yeah, because, I mean, there's a lot of stigma that's involved, you know, if if you don't don't know how to read. It can become a real problem just with everyday, uh, you know, just getting around in everyday society. Yeah, Anita actually talked to a, a adult literacy advocate who had some real-life examples of how this actually matters. Um, you know, there was a, the example of a man who had to take his daughter to the hospital because he couldn't read the, the label on the, the medicine bottle. There was another person who lost his health insurance, didn't read the notice that came in the mail or online, and, and then even two people that got betch warrants uh, because they they didn't understand what was written in the traffic violations that they received. Now that may seem fair, certainly the hospital situation and losing your insurance were by no means minor, but this adds up to uh, real financial problems. Anita even cites a Gallup study that says nationally we're talking about uh, a two point two trillion dollar cost because of low literacy levels. I mean that's a huge amount of money because of people who can't. Uh, 
read and, and write uh, fluently, uh, or at least adequately, in English. Well, so tell us more about this uh, state literacy plan they've rolled out. Well, the, some of the details are, are kind of vague. It's been in the works for uh, about uh, two years now. It's described as being more aspirational, trying to inspire, to galvanize support. There's no specific funding attached to it now, but folks that are with the organization that's affiliated with the Department of Education, by the way, says they're hoping to attract you know private donations. Uh, there is already at least with the DOE in terms of its K-12 through schools. There's already a $50 million federal grant for that. But here we're talking about adult illiteracy programs. So details still being worked out. The idea is to, well, first of all, kind of shock people about how many people uh, are not literate and how many adults, and and then hopefully get them inspired to do something about it. I mean, it includes things uh, as simple as reading to your kids, right? I know I know that's what my dad did, my mom did. I then read to my 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 next oldest brother uh, would read books because I knew how to read and he didn't. And so I, it's about forming these pathways early on uh, so that people grow up knowing the English language or whatever your language is in your other countries. So have we just not addressed this adult literacy uh, issue before? It does exist. For example, there's the McKinley Community School for Adults. Over half the students that that attend are immigrants. There's also programs that reach out to the jails, uh, to the prisons. But you know, COVID has really had a some problems with that. A Halafa a prison has had to really put you know, really had to stop what it was doing with its uh, tutoring program. Uh, although you can go online, but you know not everybody is Akamai about how to get online and, and, and find those things out. So those things do exist, but you know fundamentally it really goes to how good are the schools, uh, how many students are skipping class, what's the graduation rate. And remember as well that Hawaii, I think we all obviously know this, we have a very large immigrant population. And uh, in a lot of those households, people don't speak English as the first language. And you mentioned that word stigma. Uh, early on in our report, yeah, there's a, there's a shame that goes along with that, uh, trying to get people to realize how important it is to be to be literate. Right, and then hopefully we can get our numbers uh, back yeah. up to where they were in the Hawaiian, Hawaiian Kim, Kingdom, right? It's aspirational, Catherine. Yes. All right, okay. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Anita Hofschneider's story on literacy, visit civilbeat.org. What a difference a year makes. At this time in 2019, the Hawaii State Capitol was open to the public and people could visit their lawmakers or share oral testimony in person. They could also swing by the public access room on the fourth floor. You know, its mission is really to provide information, facilities, and services to help citizens participate in the state legislative process. The Conversations producer Lillian Song caught up with public access coordinator Virginia Beck, who reflected on the changes during COVID. And this year, it's a little bit different. Right now, we're faced with uncertainty. We have not been told whether or not the building will be open to the public uh, when we start up session on January 20th. You know, so that brings up a lot of uncertainty as to how testimony is going to be handled. When we're talking about testimony, we're talking about the uh, bills and resolutions that get introduced by the senators and representatives. And the bills, if they're successful in going through the legislative process, will become acts of law. And um, those bills on their journey have to go through particular committees that they get assigned. And in those committees, they will have hearings to hear from the public as to whether or not uh, these are good ideas. And that's when you can offer testimony. In the pre-COVID days, you could come down to the Capitol and wait in the hearing room and offer your live in-person two cents as to whether or not the bill was a good idea. And now with COVID, they will obviously continue to accept written testimony using the web form on the website. But as far as oral testimony, 
um, we'll have to wait and see whether they allow remote oral testimony or remote video testimony. In some of the Senate special sessions we had over the interim, they provided a way for citizens to participate via Zoom and offer testimony remotely. So that's what we're waiting to hear about. I don't believe the decision's been made how things are going to uh, proceed this session. It's a good reminder that if people have anything that they want to identify or talk about, they should bring it up to their lawmakers sooner rather than later. Yes. Now in the pre-session time, it's a great time to get in touch. You know, it's happy holidays and all of that, but to get in touch with other stakeholders for the issues that you're interested in, to talk about what they think is coming up in the session, what they're going to be focused on, how you can help one another um, as, as things move forward. Now would be the time to talk with legislators if they have an idea for a law that needs to be changed or a new law that they would like to see implemented. Now would be the time to reach out to the legislators so that they have time to actually draft a bill and get it ready to be introduced the first week of session. With COVID shutting down in person, how has it been for the public to reach their lawmakers? Well, I I think phone and email have been important. Um, I think different legislators have set up different ways of communicating with their constituents. Some are very familiar with Zoom and and doing meetings that way. Others may not take to it as quickly. Um, so I think it's it's really been a challenge uh, in terms of being able to, you know, in pre-COVID days, you could come and drop into an office and even if you weren't speaking with the legislator, perhaps talk with the office manager, uh, let them know what your issue is, and perhaps uh, get something on the calendar as far as a meeting or a phone call. And I think it's just a little bit more difficult now with having the building shut down. Hmm. So that means nobody has been able to come to public access room either. With the computer access, people could come to you with questions. COVID has really changed the way things are done, and a lot of the work has now migrated to the online platform. That's right. And so we've, we're still answering the phones and answering the emails. But, yeah, we don't have any walk-in traffic these days, so we really miss that. But Public Access Room has also pivoted to Zoom workshops. Can you talk about that? Sure. So um, our primary workshop that we like to start with is the Your Voice um, Overview, which it takes 45 minutes to an hour and talks about the legislative process and how you can add your voice at different stages of the process. And it's, um, it also covers how to use the legislature's website and uh, find information and set yourself up for tracking and uh, participating on different bills. Then we also, um, we, we can do other workshops depending on what the group um, is interested in. And uh, sometimes a group will call or email and say, we already know about the legislative process, but what we need is you know, more intensive about tracking bills and how to keep track. And so we can change the workshop to accommodate them. And then the other thing I just want to mention is that we do have, because we do miss the public, um, we do have a coffee hour that we set up um, for Fridays at 3 o'clock for people who want to participate on Zoom. So um, we've had a few people come and ask questions there and that kind of thing. But hopefully we'll be doing a bit more of that kind of reaching out, especially if the building stays closed. And there is a range of different comfort levels out there. Getting familiar with the website is one thing, but what if there are people listening who never go online? People who never go online should give us a call at the public access room, 587-0478, and we will be happy to be their, um, their conduit to all of the resources that are on the website. And we, we do actually help a few people like that. Um, 
who just are not comfortable with um, using the website, and we can help to get the information that they need and um, figure out how they can participate. A very different year for us going into 2021. It is. Do you have like a feeling for what issues are top of mind for lawmakers? Well, I think I think the budget is going to be overwhelmingly um, top of mind, um, and I I know there were issues that were brought forward last year that because of the COVID crisis um, discussion got cut off. And I don't know if those same issues will come back this year. I just honestly don't know how broad of a scope the session is going to have. You know, it's right now it just seems like COVID seems to uh, affect so many different things. So we'll have to wait and see. And every session is a little bit different. And I have not been successful at figuring out what the hot button topics are for the coming session. So um, there's always something that surprises me. So we need the public to participate in order to have good laws come out of this building. Um, we don't, um, the legislator can't do it alone. Uh, they really need people to participate and share their views of what would work, what wouldn't work. Um, and I guess the other thing would be uh, to please get in touch with the public access room and we'll be happy to help you figure out where your issue is in the in the pipeline and how to get involved. That was public access coordinator Virginia Beck talking with our producer Lillian Song. I should mention that the governor is holding a news conference about the budget later today. We'll post contact information and links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute. UH Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces to a little green bird that speeds around like quicksilver. This week's Manu Minute was made with recordings from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. The warbling wide-eye, or majiro, is a non-native bird that was first introduced to Hawaii from Japan in 1929. It is now the most common bird in all of Hawaii, occurring just about everywhere. They're green and gray with a very distinctive white ring around their eyes, and they're only about four inches tall. So small, they're more often heard than seen. White-eyes are known as generalists. They eat a variety of food, such as insects, fruit, and nectar. They're considered competitors when they live in the same forest as our native birds. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Department of Biology at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. That bird uh, it hangs out on my tangerine tree. Now I know what it is. From the mountains to the sea, Hawaii's birds can be heard in their native habitat. Take a moment to listen. You can subscribe to Manu Minute, HPR's podcast, now available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your RSS feed. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about how to volunteer at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Earlier in the show, we asked you if you knew the name of the person who introduced the first phones to Hawaii. In 1878, Maui resident Charles Henry Dickey installed uh, the phones, one at his home, the other at his general store. He rented the phones from a mainland firm and powered the contraptions with 
wet cell batteries. Uh, this paved the way for commercial phone service, and by December of 1880, the Hawaiian Bell Telephone Company was open for business. The company grew rapidly, and a year after the company opened its switchboard, there were 119 subscribers. The cost was cheap compared to today's standards, offering business phone service for $5 a month and residential for 4 uh, we have to say we got lots of calls today. People thought it was King Kalakaua who had the first phones in the islands. He was the first one in Honolulu, uh, but no one got the answer. Charles Henry Dickey, he was a Maui resident. And that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, a right to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from McDonald Rudy, a Honolulu law firm serving the community for nearly 30 years, offering a range of trusts and estates litigation services, including wills, trusts, and probate. Learn more at mcdonaldrudy.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marsh Cafe, we'll learn about the city and county's website, One Oahu, and the thought behind COVID response. We'll find out how the team at One Oahu address efficient surge testing and how this leads to economic recovery. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Hawaiian Soul. You may be familiar with this haunting song by John Astorio and Randy Borden. It was about Molokai activist George Helm. And now there's a film about George Helm. HPR's Kuve Hirishi joins us to talk about it. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, we did see Hawaiian Soul. It's a short film that debuted at the Hawaii International Film Festival. And uh, it tells the story, as you said, of prominent uh, Molokai activist George Helm. Uh, but it sort of explores another side of him. So it, it's not so much George Helm, the, the activist, as the musician and how the music uh, really intertwined with his path to activism. Um, and he used that throughout uh, the last several years uh, of his life. Uh, but so this this film, um, as we know, Helm was a trained musician uh, when he was a student up at St. Louis High School here on Oahu. He trained under John and, and Kahuanu Lake. And so actual recordings of Helm's music appear in this film. And it's really haunting to, to listen to. I wanted to uh, play this clip of uh, George singing Pau'okalani written by Queen Lili'uokalani. Uh, Let's take a listen. <laughs> Hawaiian filmmaker Aino Paikai uh, calls this Helm superpower. Uh, Paikai was the writer and director on the film, but this ability to sort of captivate his audience with his music, um, and then right after kind of getting them all to pay attention, saying, okay, here's my mission, this is my agenda. Uh, for those who might not be as familiar with uh, Helm's activism, he was um, the founder of the Hui Alaloa, uh, a group on Molokai who was uh, looking to protect the natural resources and cultural resources. Um, and then that sort of um, intertwined with the Protect Ko'olawe movement and the Protect Ko'olawe Ohana, of which he was uh, a well-known member. 
and uh, everyone has heard the story of uh, Kimo Mitchell and George Helm uh, mysteriously vanishing at sea while on a uh, trip to uh, stop the U.S. military bombing of Koholave. So all of this, um, I guess all of this energy and, and history is packed into this short film, but the, the ability to hear George Helm sing uh, was something that I think uh, captivated a lot of audiences. And it's some uh, big reason why uh, Paikai wanted to focus on the music more so than uh, anything else. Uh, so there's this scene that I'm going to uh, play here from the film where George Helm, who's being played by uh, taro farmer Kolea Fukumitsu, Kyoki Fukumitsu's uh, son, uh, where George Helm manages to captivate this audience of kupuna in this church who were sort of just like, who are you guys hippies? What are you guys doing here? Why are you guys interrupting church? And he goes and gets his uh, guitar, plays the song uh, we just heard, Po'o Kalani, and then um, moves into the backstory behind the song and sort of tries to get uh, win over, really, uh, the kupuna at, at this church. Here's the scene. Some of you may know that song has an interesting origin. It was written in a prison. And that prison was at Iolani Palace. It was written by the late Queen Liliuokalania. She had written it for a place in Waikiki. At one time, it was a beautiful garden filled with her favorite flowers. She longs for them, to smell their scent, to feel a gentle breeze once again. This once beautiful garden is now the location of the Holiday Inn Hotel. That's why we're here. It was a, a powerful scene to watch uh, myself. Uh, and Paikai had mentioned that uh, when they actually shot that scene in this church um, with Kupuna, who uh, were actually uh, George Helm's age, who may have known him, one was his classmate, and so everyone was very present, and uh, the crew actually decided to play his music on the spot to get those reaction shots from everyone uh, in the church, including crew. And Paikai says it was nothing but tears on that first take. And then they, the crew had to do it again because they wanted to get the right oh. shot. So, um, but this, you know, this idea of sort of reliving some of these moments, um, some were adaptations from stories that. Um, Paikai had heard from family. Um, you know, uh, I think that particular scene uh, was uh, in a newspaper article, but also uh, something that they had spoken to a Molokai activist, Walter, Uncle Walter Reedy, about. Um, and so taking folks back to these places and these times where you see this activist really um, use his music to to get his message across was something that really resonated uh, with Paikai himself, a Native Hawaiian uh, filmmaker, but also with uh, the amount of Aloha Aina movements going on right now in the community. It's a very timely um, sort of re uh, revival, perhaps, of uh, George Helm's story. Uh, for Paikai, at least, uh, and his fellow Native Hawaiian filmmaker and producer on this film, Kaliko Mai'i, both uh, UH Manoa Academy of, of Creative Media Arts um, graduates, uh, both had been wanting to do this, this project for uh, upwards of seven years. And so, you know, writing the script, I think the pandemic had a nice <laughs> sort of chilling effect to have them sit down and go through uh, some of the the material that they had shot, but really take some time to think about um, what he wanted to do uh, with this film. The biggest challenge for them, of course, was getting the families okay um, because of uh, everything that has gone on in the past. This wasn't the first proposal from a filmmaker to do a film about, about George Helm, but uh, Paikai really credits his, his connection to uh, members of the family, but also the community and his ability to keep the community at the center of the filmmaking process. Uh, so uh, a good example uh, that he had shared was in the casting. Uh, they initially had a casting director, and you do sort of what every other Hollywood film would do. You get your, you know, the guys who are registered actors, trained actors, pick from that lot, 
if they kind of look like him, all right, if they can kind of sing, all right. Uh, but that process actually didn't act- uh, didn't work out in the beginning. And what they ended up doing was going through uh, friends of friends and colleagues to find the right fit. And if anybody uh-huh. watches this movie, Kolea Fukumitsu, I'd spoken to him yesterday, looks just such a striking resemblance to George Helm, those mm. eyebrows and those, those big, uh, big eyes. But um, in that process of making sure that whoever's cast in the film is very reflective of George Helm's ohana, his his traditions, his message uh, was at the center of that. And Paikai later found out that Fukumitsu is an eighth generation a taro farmer. And mm-hmm. so having um, that aspect of Aloha Aina was just very true to what he wanted to do. But another interesting uh, thing that Paikai was able to do was really what happened behind the camera in terms of um, having a lot of Hawaiians and Native Hawaiians employed on uh, on the crew, but also on the set. One thing that I was really proud of was our production process. You know, not just the casting, but the crew um, in total, I feel like it was like over 90% Hawaiians. Um, on our team and so we were really able to again work within our community and not have to really wait for Hollywood to to come in or give us a chance to be a part of this industry. One of the beautiful things about this day and age is that we're able to create for ourselves and we have a lot of talented people and a lot of amazing stories waiting to be told and yeah. Yeah. So this uh, film is going to uh, show at the virtual Maui Film Festival beginning Friday. And I think that goes for about a month and you can check that out uh, online. Uh, but check out the film. I think it's a very um, interesting take on uh, history. All right. So nice to, to hear this. We Yesterday we had uh, the film Waikiki. Yes. Uh, lots of good stuff out there. Thank you so much, Kuvehi. Thanks. That was uh, HBR's Kuvehi Harishi. You can read her stories online at hawaiipubradio.org. We have to go now, but up tomorrow, with the election results now officially certified, we look ahead to the next step, the Electoral College. Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Find our shows are all archived online. Uh, I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Mm-hmm.